down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon and cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, O Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. For when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out to every place in the surrounding region. Let's go to the uh, Lord again in prayer. Uh, Father, we come before you uh, with thanksgiving, God. We thank you for all of your many blessings, God, particularly in this time of, of pandemic, God. We, we thank you for the, uh, the care uh, and health that you have given us in these times, God. Um, we are uh, so thankful, um, God, that as we look around the world, that we look, as we look at the places that um, this this virus and uh, this disease has attacked and and been devastating, God, we thank you that you have spared um, our community from um, from that. Um, we thank you that in general we have seen um, only a uh, very few um, people um, who have gotten sick, and and even fewer still who have. Um, died from um, uh, the coronavirus, God, that is a mercy to us. Um, we are not in control of those things. There, there are no way that we can um, ultimately keep um, those things. God, we can be safe and we can, um, we can be careful. Um, but, but at the end of the day, um, God, it is your mercy um, that, that keeps those forces at bay. And so, uh, we thank you for that. Um, God, we thank you for, um, all the ways that you continue to bless us, um, and, and allow us to, to grow and to meet together, uh, and to continue to, um, minister and to, um, God be fed, um, through this difficult time. Um, God, we pray that you would use this time, um, to those ends that as we come to your word, God, that we would be fed by it. Um, that you would shine the light of the Holy Spirit on the this text, um, that we would see it rightly, that we would glean what you would have to for us to glean from it, and that we would know you um, better because of it, that we would see the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, more clearly, more brilliantly. Um, God, in, in facets um, that we had not um, seen it before. God, and that you would use all these things um, to uh, mold us and shape us, to grow us, um, God, to bless us, to convict us, um, to form us into your people. Um, God, we ask that you would do that. Um, use your word um, and shape us with it. Uh, we ask these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So like India said, if you've got your Bible, um, turn it to Luke chapter four. And that's where we're going to be um, looking as we continue in our study of the gospel of Luke. And we are um, doing a relatively short section, um, one story about Jesus at the beginning of his ministry um, today. And so one of the things that we, we um, uh, 
the idea that we're looking at in this passage is the idea of authority uh, and of power, right? And so uh, authority um, is is a perennial issue in in any aspect of our culture, right? It, it reaches these these concepts of authority and power reach to the very roots of everything um, that we do. Um, we have seen that played over and over again as we've gone through this time um, with the coronavirus. Just this week. Um, as as businesses started to open back up and the government started to say that it was uh, okay for people to meet again, um, there was a situation, uh, a little kerfuffle, um, where um, the, the the local government had said that it was okay for churches to meet, but they weren't allowed to uh, perform the Lord's Supper um, because the Lord's Supper was not an essential aspect of worship, and it was too high risk for for potentially spreading of illness, right? And so immediately when, when that statement was made, many voices in the church came back and said, government, you have no authority to tell us as a church what is an essential act of worship and what is not. That's not part of your job. Um, that is an overreach on your part. And I agree with that, right? There's, there's, the government is completely ill-equipped, um, to tell us, to have any kind of authority to tell us the right way to worship our God. We look to the scripture to know how we worship our God. And so that's just one of, of, of a, a myriad of issues that we could talk about where, where the ideas of power and authority come into play in our daily lives. Um, however, there's an important difference between those two words, right? There's an important difference between the idea of authority and of power, and so, for example, um, you can look throughout history and see many lame duck rulers um, who had all the official authority um, that, that could be given to them and yet had no power. And by the same token, you can look through history and see many usurpers and tyrants who had um, immense power at their disposals and yet no legitimate authority. And so that those ideas come to bear on this passage, and it makes sense that they would, because as Jesus is starting um, his ministry, it should always be at the beginning of any kind of endeavor, there has to be a question asked about authority. There has to be a question asked about power. As we've already come into our story up through chapter four, um, we've, we've, uh, we've heard um, various people attest to the authority of Jesus in different places. And so in, in chapter one, um, we were told that um, Jesus was going to be given um, the throne of his father, David, and that he would reign over the house of Jacob forever and that his kingdom would have no end. In chapter two, um, we saw this idea that Jesus would be responsible for the uh, appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, which is a claim to the power that he would have um, in the lives of people. Uh, chapter three, um, it, John the Baptist, as he was talking about the coming of the Ma Messiah, he said, there is one coming who is mightier than I am, whose the straps of whose sandals I am unworthy to tie. So again, this was a this was a um, a statement about Jesus' authority, about his power. Okay, and so we've heard about the authority and power of Jesus, but now that Jesus has started his earthly ministry, now we see this power um, demonstrated. We see this authority demonstrated, and this and it, and it happens at two specific points. It happens at the point of his teaching, and it happens at the point of him casting out a demon. 
So, so again, let's look at verse 31 and begin this. The first place that we notice this authority that Jesus is demonstrating that has been ascribed to him is in uh, Luke chapter 4, starting in verse thir- 31. So it says, and when he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. So we've already mentioned Jesus is teaching in a city a city called Capernaum. It basically sits at the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. Um, and as we've mentioned, um, Capernaum kind of became Jesus' home base of operation, you could say, as he ministered um, in the region of Galilee. And so India and I, when we were in Israel back in February, actually got to go to the city of Capernaum. And there in Capernaum, it's, it, was a, it was a fairly large and prosperous kind of city. And there is a large synagogue, um, the ruins of which sit there in, in Capernaum um, to this day. And so they, they actually believe that the ruins that are there, the walls and the columns of this ancient synagogue, um, are from the 4th century. And so a little bit after Jesus' time. However... The foundation of that uh, that um, synagogue is from the first century, and so it is very likely that that is the foundation that was laid by the Roman centurion who funded the building of the synagogue in, in Capernaum that we're going to learn about when we uh, get to Luke chapter 7. And so Jesus is teaching in this synagogue in Capernaum. He's teaching in all the synagogues around um, the region of Galilee. And it says that his, that his teaching, right, that in his teaching was the first place that the people begin to recognize Jesus' unique authority. So again, verse 32, it says they were astonished at his teaching for it, for his word possessed authority. All right. So what is it about Jesus teaching that is, is astonishing? What is it about Jesus teaching that is authoritative? We, we may get a little uh, clue to that in, in the corresponding passage in the gospel of Mark. And so in Mark 1 Mark says this, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So when it says not as the scribes, what it's, what it's kind of talking about is when the scribes, right, when the teachers of Israel would teach, it was typical for them to reference other teachers from the past, right? Other famous rabbis from the past. And so, so the, the, the scribes would get together and they would be talking about biblical issues and teaching and they would say something like, well, you know, Rabbi Ben so-and-so says this about this issue, but, but Rabbi Bar, what's his face, um, says this about this issue. And so there was always a contingency there, right? There was also, there was always a little bit of uncertainty. Um, it was almost as if they were saying, well, we can't say for sure um, how things are. We can't say for sure what these things mean, but we can tell you what other teachers who we respect have said um, throughout the history of Judaism. But Jesus speaks in a different way. He doesn't quote interpretations, right? He gives interpretations. He doesn't speak as one who is referencing some other authority, but he speaks as one who is the authority himself. And so that's part of what I think is pointed to when they say he taught as one who had authority, not like the scribes taught, okay? But I think there's actually more to it than that, right? There's something beyond just the way Jesus, um, the, the, the way in which he talked. Um, I think the extent 
of what the crowds are recognizing about Jesus is, is bound up in something else. And that is the fact that when Jesus taught, there was just something about the things he said that rang true to people's hearts. When Jesus spoke, there was something about it that made people recognize that what he was saying was true and authoritative for them, right? That it lined up with what, with reality, with the way things actually are. And, and that something that was moving in their hearts was actually a someone. And it was the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit testifying these things to their hearts. In fact, we saw that just a few verses before in the last section. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Remember what Jesus said, the prophecy from Isaiah 61 that he says he is fulfilled? It says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, right? And so what we're seeing is that the Holy Spirit has anointed Jesus, and now Jesus, as he proclaims the good news, as he proclaims his teachings to the poor, um, something special happens, something beyond just the normal way um, that a teacher talks and speaks and things happen. And so there is there's a unique thing working there, right? The Holy Spirit is attesting to our hearts of the truth of Jesus word. And, and honestly, I believe that's that thing that, that, that the Holy spirit of testing those things to our hearts happens today. Um, as we read Jesus words today, as we hear um, Jesus words preached, right? The spirit can act in a unique way. The spirit can act in an anointing kind of way so that those words land, right? So that they plant, in our hearts, right? They ring true in our hearts in different ways, both sometimes encouraging us, but also confronting us and convicting us. And we must respond to that. And so again, we saw it last week. The same thing was happening when Jesus went to Nazareth. Jesus, as he, as he spoke, he revealed the hearts of the citizens of Nazareth and they responded, right? They responded to that, that word viscerally, right? They wanted to kill him, right? They responded in rejection. There are only really two ways that you can respond to any authority, most particularly to Jesus authority. When the Holy Spirit convicts you of the authority of God's word, Jesus word in the word of God, there's only two ways to respond. You must either submit to it, or you must resist it. You can either obey that authority or you can rebel against it. There's no other options. And so it seems that the people in Capernaum, at least as opposed to the people in Nazareth, that they are at least recognizing that Jesus has authority, that they are recognizing that Jesus is somebody who is speaking truth and is to be listened to. Now, so, so, so Jesus demonstrates his authority in his teaching. But now what we come to in, in the passage is the place where that authority and Jesus' power come and meet together. Because we also have to recognize when it comes to any kind of authority, when it comes to anybody speaking in a way that is, is convincing and convicting to us, we have to recognize that authority can be counterfeited. Right, especially authority that is that is seen um, through the means of, of of speaking or teaching or or something like that. So, uh, for example, that the the ancient Greeks 
um, were students of public speaking, right? They were, they were students of teaching. They were students of argumentation. The Greek philosophers wanted to know how these things worked and how they were done best, um, in, in the context of, of civic life and in, in, in scholastic life and things like that. And they recognized that there was a difference between what was called rhetoric and what was called sophistry. So, Rhetoric is, is the art of effective and persuasive speaking and writing, right? But in an honest and, and rational kind of persuasion, right? But then there was this other thing that they referred to as sophistry or sophistry. Um, and that was when people used false or manipulative arguments to persuade somebody. You know, it's kind of interesting, and it says a whole lot about our culture, our postmodern, post-truth kind of culture, that we basically now use those two words as synonyms for each other. They are basically now synonymous. So typically, when you hear somebody say, oh, well, that's just rhetoric, they're not meaning it's rational argumentation. They're saying it's empty words that are trying to convince somebody and manipulate somebody, right? But those two concepts are different, rhetoric and sophistry. We've all experienced probably the power of a truly great communicator, right? A a teacher or a preacher or a statesman or a public figure who just seems to be able to move people and affect people when they speak. And so the question has to be asked, right? Jesus is presenting this authority, um, the people are recognizing an authority in because again, the authority doesn't come from anything that they would notice in Jesus in and of himself, right? We already talked about that last week. Jesus isn't a rabbi, right? He hasn't been to, he hasn't been to seminary. He hasn't, there's, he's, he's a common man, um, and, and the son of a carpenter and a carpenter himself, right? There's nothing on the externals that would point to the fact that Jesus was a voice that should be listened to. And yet when he speaks, he has this authority. And so the question has to be asked. If someone speaks with authority, is that authority genuine or is it a function of of something else, of some kind of manipulation, right? And how do we know the difference? How would we know if somebody's authoritative speaking was legitimate or not? More specifically, in Jesus' case, does his authority come from God or is his authority fake or from another source? In in this case, in Jesus' case, the proof of Jesus' authority comes in the display of his power. And so look at verse 33, and we see Jesus' power in action. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. So a man comes to the synagogue who is possessed by a demon. And and as we're told, the demon recognizes Jesus. He acknowledges Jesus that he is the Holy One of God, which in Luke's gospel is, is basically a messianic title, 
Okay. Um, it is, it is, it is in equivalent to uh, the, he is saying that he is the Messiah. The devil recognizes this demon recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah. And that lines up with what we see in other places in scripture, right? We, we know from various places in scripture that the demonic have a significant knowledge about God and about the world. Um, uh, even to some extent about us, right? The demons know who Jesus is. But then with a word, just by speaking, Jesus casts out the demon. So, so as we, as we read this, it, it, it shouldn't strike us as surprising, um, this language about the demonic, right? Because that's all we've been talking about in chapter four, right? First, we started out in chapter four talking about, um, the, the temptation of Jesus by Satan. And all these things come together to kind of help us understand the context of what is going on. So I want you to remember and look back there in your Bible to chapter four, verse five, during the temptation narrative, right? During the time when Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And you remember the temptation in verse five, that says this, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you, I will give all this authority. There's that word and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Okay, so Satan says, I have authority over the world. I rule it. And here's the thing, he's not lying. Okay, he, he may be overplaying his hand a little bit, but he's not lying. Because we see that truth repeated all throughout the New Testament, right? Um, John says in his first epi epistle, the world, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Paul tells us that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Just last fall, when we were talking in the book of Ephesians, we, we read about the fact that it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, right? That was talking about the devil and his, and his influence in the world around us, right? Um, we recognize, uh, as, as we're told again, that, that our fight is not against flesh and blood, but it is against the, the spiritual powers in, in, uh, the dark realms, right? Um, that, that we fight against. Satan has significant influence in the world, okay? But notice also this, and this is the key. This authority that Satan has is a delivered authority. It is a contingent authority. He says, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me. That is to say, it is something that has been allowed to Satan, but it's not his by right, right? And it's not his by power. God, in his wisdom, as part of the punishment and the curse of sin on the world, has allowed Satan to exert a certain amount of authority over the world. But it is always at God's good pleasure. 
And so, like, we see that in the book of Job, right? Satan wants to destroy Job, but what does he have to do? He has to get God's permission to interfere in his life first, right? Satan must have permission. He must be allowed to interfere in humanity. Because, and we, and we, this is always something that we have to remember, Satan is not God. He is not even, he's not a God. He is not equal to God in any way, right? He is not like the concept of, of sort of like a yin yang idea. We don't, we don't believe in a dualistic universe. We don't believe that there is a good side of the universe and a bad side of the universe. And these two things are fighting and jockeying for influence and, and position, right? We don't believe any of that. There is only one God, one ultimate and independent being. And the rest of us, we live and move and have our being according to his word and according to his will. And that includes Satan. That includes the demonic. And so in this story, Satan has afflicted this man in the story until now, but that's only because there was no contestant to his authority or his power. He had been allowed to do this because there was no one to challenge him, because we as humans are not strong enough um, to, to um, challenge his authority and power. But you could say there's a new sheriff in town, right, in this story, because Jesus arrives and his authority is the authority of God on high, right? God the Father anointing God the Son by God the Holy Spirit. Satan has a contingent authority and power, but Jesus has ultimate authority and power. And so Satan could do as he pleased right up until the boss showed up. And now that Jesus is here, now that the real authority has come, Satan has to yield. Jesus keeps on telling us throughout the Gospels, right, the kingdom has arrived, right? He uses that word kingdom for a specific purpose, right? The rule of God has arrived. The rule of God in our hearts, certainly in our lives, in the lives of men, certainly, but also as the ultimate force that dictates um, the the events of, of history and the events of men's lives, right? Satan's contingent rule is put in place in this story. So, you know, I think, I think probably the case is, is that a secular world reads these stories, right? We're going to talk about this a little bit more next week. Um, it reads these stories and says, you know, obviously when we start talking about all this stuff about the, uh, demonic possession and, and Satan and things like this, this is just a function of the ignorance and superstition of, of the ancient world, right? I mean, we certainly don't see these kind of things happening to the extent that the Bible seems to talk about them, uh, happening, uh, they don't, they don't happen that way today, right? And but there's one, at least one thing that I think they're missing in that. And the reality, the thing that they're missing is Jesus, right? That Jesus coming into the world has changed things, right? That the world is not the way it was before Christ um, uh, came into it, before Christ was made manifest, right? The one God, big G, has come and driven out the many gods, little g, right? There is a, there's been a paradigm shift in the way the world and the spiritual realm actually work now. 
Okay, And so again, we see this in the way Jesus talks as we go throughout the Gospels. So at the story of the triumphal entry, which we are obviously a long way from in the Gospel of Luke, but at the triumphal entry, Jesus says this. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Okay, that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying the ruler of this world, as I come into Jerusalem, as I fulfill my purpose that God has has called me to and sent me to earth for, the ruler of this world is going to be cast out. And then in verse 32 of, of chapter 12 of John, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die, right? Jesus does something very important. He connects the idea of the defeat of Satan and the uh, the subversion of Satan, the fact that Satan's authority has been um, diminished and bound and, and placed under Christ's authority. He says the place that this is going to be seen most clearly is at the point of the cross. Jesus points us to the cross as the ultimate disarming of Satan. Because what do we see? At the cross, something very important happens. At the cross, our record of sin is erased. And so we saw that in the passage that we, that we read for our scriptural assurance of salvation, Colossians chapter 2. And so in verse 9, it says, For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head and rule of all authority. All right. And so, again, it's it's referencing that idea of authority. But then skip down to verse 13 and it says this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And therefore what? Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities. That is the spiritual forces in in the, the heavenly realms. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Right? So what is, I mean, what is the picture that we are seeing there? Jesus showing up and exerting his, his, his demonstrating his authority, demonstrating his power. Again, we, we kind of use this illustration all the time, but this is the beachhead, right? This is Jesus landing at Normandy saying, um, the beginning of the end of Satan has started now. That the, the, the great authority that, that Satan had, which is that of his role as the accuser, right, has been disarmed. Because what is Satan always doing? He is always reminding us of our sin. He is always reminding us of our unworthiness. He is reminding us of the death that we owe God because of our sin. He is reminding us of God's impending just judgment. But his one weapon has been taken away now. Because Jesus has come in power and authority right? He has come to live for our righteousness and, and not only in authority of his, his rule, but in his power to die for his people and then to raise his life up again. Again, that is why every knee will bow. That is why to him be glory and dominion and power before all time now and forever. 
And so what we come to is at the end of this passage, if we have truly come to know Jesus Christ, if we have truly come under the saving and safe power of his authority and, 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 and his power, we should have the same response and even more so as those people in Capernaum had as they heard Jesus say these things and heard, saw Jesus do these things. Verse 37, and reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region, right? We should have on our lips in all times, in all places, the, the glory, majesty, dominion, and power of who Jesus Christ is and what he has come to do. And so with the Capernaum, the people of Capernaum, let us be amazed at the teaching of Jesus. Let us testify to the order-shaking power that he demonstrates as he saves us and welcomes us into the new rule, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we close today. Father God, we give you praise, honor, God, we attest to your majesty, to your glory, to your awesome authority and power in that you have sent Jesus Christ into the world to be a perfect sacrifice for sin. God, that you have in his the power of his life, he has lived a perfect life, God. In in the power and victory of his cross, God, um, that he is able to die in our place and then yet to take his life up again, God, to, to be resurrected from the grave, God, and to be risen and seated at the right hand of your throne, demonstrating, exhibiting, letting all the universe know that he is powerful, that he is in authority and that he sits next to you. Father, we praise you that Jesus Christ is these things. We praise you that that we no longer look to Satan in fear, that we tremble not before him because he has no power, that he has been disarmed, that everything that he had against us has been taken away because of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. God, let us revel in that beautiful truth. God, let us have an assurance that um, we are forgiven, God, that even when we mess up by our own stupid and selfish and sinful wills, even when we mess up, God, that we have not lost our salvation, that we have not been disconnected from you, but that you welcome us and and ask us and, and call us and woo us to return to you. Um, because our place with you is secured because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God, thank you for that. We praise you. We give you glory, honor, and praise in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song.